we have to walk in with the idea that words are only clues. Yeah. And, and that the only way that we actually get to truth is, is to discuss. Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Mike Kottmeyer is back. Mike, thanks for taking time out of your evening. Dave, thank you for doing this podcast with me on short notice. I literally just called you up and said, like, I, I want to talk to you, man. Like, let's, <laughs> let's record it. And these are always the best ones because Mike shows up with something he wants to talk about. I have an idea. I have an so. Idea. It's been bugging the hell out of me, you know. All so. right. So what's up? Oh, and hey, one thing I got to, one thing I got to, like, point out is I'm wearing my Mule Resophonic hey, shirt. Hey, hold on. In your honor. So, oh, did you get it? Yeah. Did you get it? Talk about things you can't explain in words. Right oh, there. dude, that's awesome, man. And, what a gorgeous guitar. Um, it is gorgeous. And I'll tell you one thing that's really cool about uh, the idea of delighting the customer, which is completely off topic. Yeah. In the weeks before you get the guitar, Matt sends you pictures of it as it's being built. Oh, that's awesome. So Super. you get like more and more excited and then the box finally comes and you're like, oh my God. And you talk to other people and they're like, I don't understand. Yeah, so Dave sends me this. <laughs> So Dave sends me this link to this Mule Resophonic guitar because he knows I'm in the guitar. So you can see him all back there, right? So I'm in the Mule. Like, so I look at it. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. So like, you could buy a build slot. So I, so I bought like to pay like $250 for a build slot like 18 months for an hour or something. Yeah. And Dave's like, yeah, I'm just building mine. So, yeah. <laughs> it takes so forever. Pretty, it's yeah, totally it worth it though. Yeah. And, and the thing that's so cool, I mean, because because of the topic that we're going to be focused on, the, the yeah. guy who creates them is really into that as well. He does a lot of podcasts yeah. about intent and being focused on what you're doing and not just yeah. like slopping through the motions yeah but yeah. but we have a topic cool so the idea the idea i want to explore with you man is um so how do i put it in words right so there's something in this space right i don't think this is going to be foreign to most agile practitioners but it's like the idea that like just words are insufficient you know and so a lot of that manifests i remember reading like Alistair Coburn's early stuff on Agile. And he would talk a lot about like needing to be in the room and the importance of face-to-face communication. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I always, I, I kind of anchored on the idea of osmotic communication early. You just hear things in the ether, right? And you hear tone and you hear inflection. And when you're sitting down with somebody and you're talking about requirements. I think that's the reason why we came up with the idea of like user stories and cards and things like that. It's a placeholder for a conversation. But, but like, even, like, even in the midst of that, like, it's not just words and nonverbals. I think, I think what I'm kind of hunting around is this idea that like, like words are insufficient to describe complex things, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, I'm going to, I'll give you an example and then I'll, I'll pause and see if you want to like <laughs> have a conversation with me, right? It's like words are insufficient. And so it's like. They can kind of get us into the right area, but if we're not hunting for the intent behind the words and trying to align on the intent, because like one of my constant frustrations is one of the things in Leading Agile I think is super fascinating. So we'll have people join us. And I mean, at this state, we've been in business 12 years and mm -hmm. we've done a lot of transformation work and we've learned a lot of stuff and we have a lot of examples of documents, deliverables, decks, things like that that we've done to help lead different organizations. And and I've had people join our company and they go, they go, well, the leading agile model is like really dogmatic. I'm like, what are you talking about? 
like there's like 20,000 pages of documents that describe it. I'm like, no, no, <laughs> there's like, there's like six pages that, that, that describe it. And then there's like 20,000 pages of implementation yeah. um, detail and stuff like that. And, and so like back in the day when a lot of the things that we were inventing around, you know, the quadrant model that we've got, um, you know, predictability, adaptability, emergent, convergent, four quadrants, yeah, the um, expeditions to base camps. Like for me, those were ideas. They were an intent. They were like a principle. And, and in order to talk about it, to market it, to sell it, to get people to want to do it, to teach people how to do it, mm-hmm. you have to put it in words. Yeah. But, but the, I find the conversations I'm having 12 years later, it's like people are like, well, the words say that you do this, then you do this, then you do this, then you do this. I'm like, well, yeah, but sure. But if the context changes or this changes or that changes, um, then you got to change it. They're like, well, but no, but that's not what it's written down. Well, right. but, but if you understand the intent, you understand the principle behind it, then everything becomes incredibly more adaptable. So that makes sense at all? It, like, it does. I'm I'm fine. I've got yeah. lots of examples of things that, that give me an example. On, well, a totally unrelated thing, right? Yeah. So my my family and I lived three blocks away from the World Trade Center when it came down. Oh, wow! And I can show people the video I shot that morning. I can show them pictures. We can watch. Mm-hmm. But if you weren't there and you didn't see what that building looked like with a plane stuck in it, yeah, you don't get it. It's oh, a, I can't it, even imagine. Oh, and, yeah. And that's something that I, I don't talk about much because I can't like I doesn't nobody's going to understand unless they were there what that was like. It's yeah. it's the same with a lot of music. It's the same with a lot of concepts. But I would imagine that for you, when you're talking to people, if they get the intent, you can sense that, right? Well, well, I well, I don't know. Maybe I, okay. I was going to actually build on an argument. My wife and I went to um, Sedona a couple months ago. And Sedona is like two hours away from the Grand Canyon. So we're like, yeah, let's drive out the Grand Canyon. And it's like you look at the Grand Canyon for the first time. You're like, oh, my God. Like, I mean, like TV. (laughs) Different than the Brady Bunch. Like nothing, (laughs) like nothing prepares you to see the vastness of the Grand Canyon. And then you take a picture of it on your iPhone and you're like, okay. Yeah, it's not the same. Yeah, it's like it's like I I had this uh, pretty powerful experience. I've been doing a lot of work on myself over the last you know couple years, but um, this year um, fairly intensely, you know. And you know, one of the things that I was exploring a few months ago is the idea of like feelings, and and like one of the things that's hard in like interpersonal relationships is is um, words make feelings small. So if, if you have this really complex set of emotional conditions in your body and somebody says, oh, are you mad? Are you sad? Are you upset? You're like, well, that might get you in the area of it, but it's way more complicated and nuanced than that. And I was thinking about this idea that words make feelings feel seem small, yeah. right? And, and I was also thinking about like the idea, you mentioned music and I was thinking about art um, you know, I think like you think about like the Renaissance era and all the different great artists. It's like they're trying to describe God. They're trying to describe heaven and mm-hmm. things like that. And and they're doing it through art and music and theater and all these different things because there's no there's no words that can describe that kind of a concept. Sure. You look at everything that's going on around us and we call it the universe or the galaxy. And you're just like, it just seems, it's just way too small to describe it. And I, and I think that's a, like a limitation, right? So I don't know, right? I mean, I feel like sometimes, Dave, to your point, you're having conversations with people and 
like you think people get it. Like you think you're on the same page. <laughs> no, they show you they don't. Yeah. But I don't know, right? Um, and it's yeah, but maybe, right? You know, Dennis and I have been collaborating for a long time. And for anybody who doesn't know, Dennis is is my partner here in Leading Agile. And uh, we talked for years around certain things. And we're like, oh, we were using that word differently. Fascinating, right? Because just the yeah. words are, are insufficient. It took years to figure out we were we were talking about a totally different concept. It's crazy. And so like, I guess maybe what I'm what I'm trying to hunt for, and maybe we can apply this in agile and some other things, but it's like, but it's like if we're not seeking to understand intent, yeah, and we're just anchoring on the words, okay, it's like we're gonna miss the mark. Yes. Right? You got to see that all the time in your scrum classes. Well, so I'm thinking of something yeah. in particular I went through recently. I took a course at Modus Institute and Jim Benson and Tony and Tim. Oh, yeah. Thing. Awesome. That's super cool. And How's Jim doing, by the way? Is he good? Really good. Yeah. And then yeah. the program was amazing. Um, yeah. At the end of the certification program, we were doing a group exercise and we had to do this thing called a value matrix. And Okay. And and the background of it is me and two other guys, Mark Kilby and Deshantan, were talking about creating a podcast. Mm-hmm. Came into it. We've been working together for months. We think we're all on the same page. And we get to this exercise and we have to unpack what matters to each of us about doing this and why it's important and how we measure the value of it. Mm-hmm. We're completely in disarray. Yeah. So I think – I agree with everything you're saying. I'm wondering if there are tools or techniques that can be used to create alignment or assess whether or not. I mean, yes, you can see when somebody doesn't get it, but how yeah. do you get them to that place where they, where you and them are on the same page? Well, well gosh, that's interesting. I, I don't know that I have an answer to that question. Do you have an answer to the question? No, no. That's why I'm asking that's you. Right. Okay. Well, cool. I mean, well, the best example I have is that 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 value matrix. So let's explore a little well, bit. Well, the, yeah. the, the the exercise that we did showed us how we were not in alignment, and at least then we were able to appreciate the difference yeah. and care for what each other wanted. So maybe yeah. if somebody can yeah. see they're not in alignment with <clears> you, but they understand where you are, they can meet you somewhere in the middle. Interesting. Well, I'm going to ask you a question to see if this is a good example. Do do people still do like planning poker and Fibonacci series and yeah. stuff like that? Is this something you guys still teach? Okay, cool. Yeah. I know in some circles that's kind of gone out of vogue. You know, as I you know I read periodically, I know sometimes you know the no estimates crew and stuff like that. <laughs> but the way back in the day when I was doing more hands on consulting, mm-hmm. um, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting was around the idea of planning poker, and 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 I and that's a really interesting. That's an interesting concept. And the way I used to teach it is we go around, we have a discussion about the card, story, whatever, and then everybody throws a card. Right. And the idea is, is that they're unitless things, right? Mm-hmm. And then in a Fibonacci series, the numbers that are really low are really close together. And then the bigger they get, they're farther away because the idea is that the bigger the story is, the, the more uncertainty is. So we're not going to argue whether it's a one or a two or a two or a three. Sure. Well, we might, but we might have a conversation whether it's five or an eight or an eight or 13 or 13 or 21, mm-hmm. knowing that like you got to put it in one bucket or the other. But, but like you could go through and you could play planning poker really mechanically mm-hmm. and you could say, okay, cool, cool, cool. Okay, cool. High, low, this. Okay, cool. Whatever. Right. And just put numbers on things. Right. You could go through the motions of doing that. But what I always thought was interesting that I think a lot of people miss um, in that exercise it's really an exercise of shared understanding. Yeah. And the way that I would teach it is I'd be like, okay, we're all throwing cards. You throw one, you throw two, I throw three. And then the way I was taught it was that the high and the low 
have to argue why they thought it was a high and a low. Right. And what the idea was is to elicit out where the disconnect and understanding is. Yep. And and um, and you know, so to me, like as you asked me that question, like like maybe in like software requirements, that's a way. When when you know you would talk about like writing a user story, you could like really mechanically write a user story as a user. I want this so that like whatever. Right? Yeah. Um, I'm very sensitive to the fact that I'm not on the front edges of BDD and different languages and things like that, that people are using, right? But um, okay. so this is, you know, so my, uh, so my lexicon of examples is probably getting dated here a little bit. But, but you know, the idea is, is that, but you can write that down and the product owner can mechanically put that on a card or in Jira or something like that. But if we're standing in a room and we're talking about it right. and we're on the whiteboard and we're visualizing it and the team's like, well, do you mean like this? And do you mean like that? But but I guess the the root is like what's really in my brain is like is like we have to walk in with the awareness that words are insufficient. Yes. Right. We have to we have to walk in with the idea that words are only clues. Yeah. And and that the only way that we actually get to truth is is to discuss. So like, you know, personal example, right? So if I, if I say to my wife, like, Hey, you look really pissed at me. She's like, no, I'm not pissed at you. I'm like, well, you're something. Yeah. Right. So, so help me understand. I get pissed is not the right word. Um, agitated, disappointed. Um, can you tell me about that? Right. Can you, can you try to describe the emotion to me so I can get a little bit closer? Okay. If I walk into every interaction with somebody and I recognize that words are not sufficient, yeah. then, and I'm hunting intent and I'm hunting shared understanding, then, you know, then I have a shot. Um, <clears throat> like I'll, like, like I remember the, one of the books, I, I, I never remember the name of the book. I actually bought it. So I'd hopefully remember. And it's literally sitting next to the seat I sit in all the time. And I can never remember what's the name of the book that Ken Schwaber and Mike Beetle wrote that has like the red, blue, green, yellow, and the all red, the blue, colors. yellow book. That's <laughs> is that what we call it? The red, blue, yellow I, book? I, I have it too. Somewhere on my book. Is it back there somewhere? Yeah. I don't yeah, know. I don't know what it's, it's in my office over here somewhere. I, I'm not going to go get it though. Um, you know, so what, what I found that was really fascinating about those early books, like his was one of them, Coburn's Agile Software, not Agile Software Requirements. Um, it was the one that was like um, Agile Software Development, a collaborative game or something like that. Okay. That he wrote um, Poppendick's early work, the early XP work. What I thought was really cool about those books, even like Leffingwell's early work, um, I think his first one was scaling software agility, and then he did the where he really kind of started codifying safe was the uh, was the agile requirements book or something like that. Yeah. And what was cool about those early books is that people were describing the thought process. It's like they were describing okay. like how did we come to this conclusion? <clears throat> Before David Anderson wrote the Kanban stuff. Right. You know, he wrote his Agile Management book where he was exploring the math behind theory of constraints in software engineering. Okay. Um, I found the first book of that, first half of that book, brilliant. I found the back half probably brilliant, but it was impenetrable to me. I didn't understand the math as much. Right? Okay. But, but it was a really, really cool book, right? And what, what all these guys were doing is they were exploring, like, why this stuff worked. Mm-hmm. And where it manifests itself in... 
agile a lot, I think. And I, and I got to believe you see it every day. It's like we tell people how to do right user stories and how to do planning poker and how to build backlogs and how to do burn down charts and how to um, run a sprint planning meeting, how to run a daily standup meeting, how to do a review and retrospective and all that kind of stuff. Right. But the intent, the reason why I brought up the Schwaber Beetle book was I remember them, I want, hopefully I don't get this, this word wrong, but they were talking about the idea of process control. And okay. I want to say it was like predictive process control versus empirical process control. Okay. And really what we're doing in Scrum is we are, we're recognizing that the process of building software is something that is high variation, at least in a lot of contexts, it's very mm -hmm. high variation. People are variable, the requirements are variable, the technical implements, the technical implementations are often variable. Yeah. We're often inventing things we don't understand. We're running experiments, we're trying, we're failing, all these things. Right. And so, you know, the inclination is to want to make that predictable. Right. And so what they do is that this is the one, like my big takeaway from that book, is the idea that when predictability is achievable. A very predictable process control, something like a Gantt chart, um, is is desirable, right? You, that okay. would be the cheapest, most cost-effective way to manage a predictable process. Sure, is with predictable process control. But if the if the process is inherently unstable, mm -hmm. then you have to use like an empirical process control method. So if I'm building, a, I think the example is if I'm manufacturing a part. And there's an unacceptable variation in the part um, relative to like the tolerances that I need. Sure. Um, and, and so that system is unstable. I have to measure it often or I'm going to build a thousand parts that are wrong. Yes. But, but if I know it's unstable and I build two or three and I go, oh, okay, cool. I got to crack. Build two or three. I got to crack. Right. So if you, if you really look at what Scrum fundamentally is, it's, it's a sampling rate increase on an unpredictable process. Yeah. And, and, and like, and you read that stuff from Schwaber and Beetle back in the day and you're like, these guys like really, really understand it. You know, they're, they're like, okay, we're going to break requirements in small batches. We're going to keep it testable all the time. Yeah. We're going to inspect and adapt. We're going to measure and sample and compare and validate constantly. Because if we don't, we go too far without doing that. Then we, then we, we deviate. Yeah. From the intent. Right. Yeah. So so the answer to that was, well, let's get together every week or two and let's sit down with the product owner and let's do sprint planning. Mm -hmm. and Let's all get on the same page. And then we're going to give the team a week or two uninterrupted. But the team's going to like daily stand up and then they're going to get at the end and they're going to they're going to review what they've built with the product owner. Right. And then they're going to they're going to start ex ex exploring how to reevaluate. Yeah. Right. How to how to adapt. OK. And and. And that's brilliant, right? That's exactly what you should do. But you can run sprint planning, do daily standups, do reviews and retrospectives, and you can be the best sticky note person and the best facilitator and the best whatever. But if you don't understand what it is or why we're doing it, yeah, it's almost impossible not to go through the motions on it. Well, and and to run it completely off the rails. Like one of my big pet peeves in classes when people talk about how they carry work over every sprint, mm -hmm. I'm like. That it violates the entire reason of having a sprint. Like, yeah, why even sure. pretend you're doing Scrum if you're doing that? But well, for sure. they don't. They don't understand why the sprint is there. And so, I want. I have a question for, sure. for you now. So, 
Mm-hmm. Sure. I get where you're going with this. And you went to yeah. a place I was going to ask you about anyway. You are somebody who often turns to the source material. You go to yeah. Alistair, you go to the Poppendix, you go to all those yeah. early books. And and we've done interviews before where you've expressed um, dismay. Yeah, Absolutely. I was going to say frustration, but frustration is not the word. Yeah, just like That's sorrow amazing. over the fact that yeah. everyone yeah. hasn't read all those books. And, yeah. and I'm wondering yeah. how much, and maybe you can't quantify it, but like how much of what you understand as the intent is driven by familiarity with those source materials. Oh, I, I 100% attribute it to that. Okay. Right? 100% attribute it. I, I feel very, there's a couple of periods where I entered the IT world that I felt very fortunate to come in when I did. Mm-hmm. And and the, the early one is back in 89, 90. I was a co-op with IBM and I was doing like tech support on like literally DOS systems, mm-hmm. like big, gigantic, four megabyte hard drives and stuff like that, you know? Yeah. And yeah. installing operating systems and doing all that stuff. And, you know, you had to learn how to do memory management and things like that. When I was doing computer science in school, like we had to, we had to learn how to code in binary mm-hmm. and stuff. And like being in early enough when the theory was evolving, yeah, like really helped me understand how computers work. Now I can't do anything advanced at this point um, on a, like other than just end user stuff, right? But but it's like the principles fundamentally don't change behind any of that stuff. The languages, you know, like the languages change, but the principles behind language don't change as frequent. But is know? it is it fair to expect somebody coming up now to go well, back to all that because one they don't have the time yeah. two everybody expects them to already know it three they could just watch a youtube video well well so i don't know right it depends on it, it depends on what you want so one one um you know one kind of interesting conversation is um you know one of the one of the signers of the manifesto that i've become friends with over the years is alistair and so much respect for that man and i got the first time i ever got to spend time with him was up in charlotte with a with a friend of ours named David Span, I think is probably some of you guys know David. Um, really awesome weekend. I actually canceled a bunch of stuff when I got that invite because I'm like, I'm going to go hang out with those guys. <laughs> and uh, and I remember we were at like the National Whitewater Center. It's a very like pivotal moment. And I was talking with Alistair about some stuff, and he said something like, "He's like every 20 years the industry forgets and yeah. has to relearn itself, right?" And and, and that might just be what's what's going on. Maybe maybe that's human nature. Maybe people are too busy. Maybe they shouldn't expect. Maybe whatever. Okay. Right. But but for but for when I said like it depends on what you want, it's like do you want to be effective? Do you want to understand? Do you want to be a leader? You want to help others understand? Yeah. Well, if you do, then like you should know where this stuff you're talking about came from. Right at the end of the day. It's you a know? lot like, of know, reading right? though. And, it is a lot and, of reading, right? But it's like, but again, like, and I don't know, like, I don't have the energy to read that much. Um, I don't read much of the new work that comes out. Like, I usually will buy it and I'll kind of thumb through it and yeah. I'll just get familiar with its existence. But, but to me, and this is, this is part of <clears throat> the challenge, you know, I've been doing this stuff in leading Agile for 12 years. I've been kind of in the Agile world for about 20, 21 years at this point. It's probably, maybe not quite that long, maybe 2002, 2003. So almost like 19, 20 years. And like, it, to me, like once you understand the principles, like everything's just also just details. It's just like, it's just, I, I call it like reference architecture versus reference implementation. Like once you understand what's underneath safe, yeah, like, like it's just implementation details. 
Um, safe okay. and less are built on the same fundamental principles. They make different assumptions about the environments. They make different assumptions about what's possible, right. um, what's required to get there. But they're all they're fundamentally based on the same underlying reference architecture. Okay. Disciplined agile delivery. You know, Nexus is probably a little bit of a different beast. Spotify is maybe a little bit different. But they're all based on the same fundamental principles. Sure. And once you recognize those principles, then it's kind of like you're like, eh, it's just details, right? And if the details are interesting, like, again, when I was younger and I was figuring this stuff out, like, I wanted the principles, but then I wanted the details, and then I needed to go do it, and I want to understand it. And then you get to a point where, like, okay, like, in this domain, like, like I don't say you're always learning, but, like, I know a lot. Yeah. Right? And so, like, I'm just not as interested in reading somebody else's implementation details anymore. Um, okay. But is it, is it, is it um, like, a young scrum master, a young agile project manager, if I can use that word, sure. right? A project manager is operating in a mixed mode environment with agile and waterfall and stuff like that. Is it reasonable to ask somebody who's early in their career to become a professional in their career and be familiar with the literature yeah. in their career? Okay. Right. The presumption that you're going to, you know, as good a trainer as you are, Dave, the, the presumption that you're going to come to a two day class yeah. and leave with, 40 years of industry history and background and expertise. And, you know, the other thing I think is fascinating and, it, and it's kind of sad in a way is I think, you know, we have some young people that work for us. We don't have a ton of young people in leading agile, but we have maybe eight um, underneath the age of 30 that are playing different roles on our accounts. And one of the things that's, again, one of the things I'm thankful about when I entered the industry is I lived in that waterfall world. I lived in that chaotic world and I, and I viscerally experienced the problems yeah. and wrestled the problems to the ground. And then when Agile started getting introduced, and, and I, that was early in that, so like all the first principles were being explored. Yeah. And you could compare like what you were doing to what had been done and how it was better and all these different things. And, and you grow up in that ether. Yeah. And all that stuff gets really wired into you because you have experience and stories and sure. things to talk about. People that are coming to your class for the most part, especially if they're 35 or younger or something like that, they probably haven't been well, in that world. They've just been in so, a bad agile world for the well, most part. Yeah, mm -hmm. I have two things. So I get people now who don't understand. They've never heard of Waterfall. And yeah, it's, it's kind of super it? hard to explain <laughs> yeah. agile, which is a fix yeah. for Waterfall, to people that don't yeah. know what you're fixing. Um, yeah. But I have been a project manager since 1995. Yeah. I just read Frederick Taylor's book two months ago. Yes, I've never read his book. I've read the book. Right. I, read the I know, but here's the thing. Back to like the core thing. That yeah. there's a ton of agile in that. I mean, there's so much that oh, gets skipped stuff. over, yeah. so much of the oh, yeah. attention mm -hmm. and the approach and the fact that he studied the same stuff for thirty years. I mean, talk about like yeah. really doing your homework. Mm -hmm. It's not like I mean, I've talked smack about that guy the whole time I've been a project manager, and it wasn't until I read it that I'm like, oh crap. You know, and, well, and, and if I read it 20 years ago, I wouldn't have got it. Well, so the one thing that I had um, that I'd always anecdotally heard is that um, you take that initial graphic with the, the waterfall steps in it. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you really talk about what and, and this is, what I think, you've experienced is that you talk about like what he was intending to try to explain was like, do this for a little bit, do this for a little bit. You're looping feedback loops, right? All that kind of stuff. And we just took all the feedback loops out of the waterfall. <laughs> And made the batches really big, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I think that guy's probably been really poorly quoted for a long time.
Yeah, for sure. Not fair to that. But so. but but to the to the the thing that I was trying to get to was like if I read that when I was the age of some of our younger people at Leading Agile, it wouldn't have I wouldn't have understand it on the level that I understand it now. Yeah, if I read, yeah. I've never read Mary Poppendick, but if I read Mary Poppendick now, I'm sure I would get it in a way I wouldn't have gotten 15 yeah. years ago. Yeah, that's actually an interesting thing. It might be kind of fun to go back and read some of those books I read 20 years ago that are just in my DNA now, you know? Yeah. Um, but so how do we get, I mean, I, I know that it's it's challenging when you when we get people, you know, Leading Agile or any other company yeah. who don't get it i don't know a better way to say it like they 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 know the steps but they just don't get it how do you get them to get it i'm gonna sound like a really old person at this point um but you know i I don't know i don't know a better way to express it like yeah no no it's got it right i i I know you're asking you know one of the things that we started to do i don't know if you're on our our all hands company call today but one of the things that we're going to do um and we did it today is dennis and i are going to get on the phone and, you know, we have a ton of people in the company that have been here three years or less, and um, they're learning our way and doing great work. But, but like, we're going to get on the phone every week and take a couple of topics and start to explore where it came from. Because mm-hmm. all, these things, all these things we do have story behind them, mm-hmm. you know? And, and it's like... And it's like people will go like, well, the way Leading Agile does, we do a two-day workshop, then we do a find the end state, and we do a pilot, and then we scale it, and blah, 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 blah. And this is what a two-day workshop looks like, and this is what a define the end state looks like. And we have it all codified out and everything. But, but there's some funny backstories behind it, right? It's like, why did we start every engagement with a two-day workshop? Yeah. Well, there's two reasons, right? Because at one point in time, um, we were a small company, um, small, a lot smaller than we are now. And I had like eight people that called us and wanted to do business with us all at the same time. And so my initial thing was like, well, I don't want to let these people go. Like I want to do the work and I want to scale to do the work, but I don't have anybody to do it right now. So what I said is like, okay, well, cool. The way I'd start this is let's do a two day workshop because I can do a lot of those. Right. Yeah. And and so we started to test price points and things like that on, on the two day workshop. And then we started to realize that we could get people to move with us pretty quickly if we did these two-day workshops. And then we added a lot of value in the two-day workshops. And then we could set up, a, okay, here's the next step. It's like a six or eight week to find the end state. And then we started to codify that. And a big part of the reason why we did that in the early days wasn't so much because like define the end state was the next best thing to do. But a lot of it was because I was hiring new You need employees. time to hire people. <laughs> Dude, I needed time to onboard them while they're getting billable on clients. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and you're trying to do this all with integrity and forthrightness. And it's like you're not – but again, you're trying to add value in a way with people who aren't familiar with our core model. Right? Sure. And then, and then by the time we did that, like everybody's up to speed enough and then we could go execute a pilot and we could go do the bigger transformation after that. And it generally worked. And then you start to do that enough and you go like, okay, cool. That's a really cool repeatable pattern. And then you codify the pattern. Right. But, but like if you don't know that the two-day workshop is as much to enlist and to get them interested, almost like even if they bought the next phase, you have to understand that the, the two-day workshop isn't to read the deck and run the exercises and to produce the deliverables and everything. Yeah. It's to capture their imagination. Is to help them see what's possible. Right. Okay. And that's the thing. When, yeah. I, when I say the people that – there are people that, that you would bring in that would just instinctively know that. 
in the same way that there's people yeah. that consultants, you put yeah. them in a room, they know their job is I need to take this room and they just do it without thinking about it. And there's yeah. other people that you can be like, take the room and they're like, wait, what, how do I do that? And you're like, ah. Well, well yeah. So, <laughs> so like what I would tell, I would tell people, and we got away from this for a little bit. It's like, but we're going to get it back. It's like the idea that I would rather you stand in front of a room and be authentic to what you believe in than to get up in front of a room and read, and read a slide I put together. Yeah. You know, so like what I encourage our people to do is to like to understand the intent, but then to run their experiences through the lens of our intent, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because, because everybody, everybody that comes to work for Leading Agile has done transformation work in some context. And they've been successful in some context. And we generally believe that everything that we do is based on common core principles. We haven't invented anything that we do. We've right. just packaged it and made it repeatable in a way. And so if you come to me with five years of transformation experience, but you never worked in Leading Agile, I guarantee you've done a lot of the stuff that we've done. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's just a matter of finding um, our truth in the things that you've done and being able to bridge and you can stand in front of a client and say, yeah, okay. I've been here for like, I've been a leading agile for three months. I'm still learning all the words. That's totally fine. But let me tell you my understanding of the first principles. Let me tell you my understanding of the patterns. Based on that, here's all the shit that I've done in the past. Okay. And, and you could be a really credible transformation change leader having worked for us for a few months because, again, we didn't invent anything. We're just packaging up a cohesive system okay. so that you can make change, right? Sure. Um, but if you understand the fundamentals like I'll give you, maybe this is, I don't know if this is an interesting example or not, but um, one of the coaches I've been working with for the last couple of years is um, a really awesome guy. And he does a lot of, um, I don't know, a lot of stuff. But part of what he does is, um, aside from the internal work and personal development, is just really just simple goal planning, stuff mm -hmm. like that. Annual goal planning, quarterly goal planning, um, having like weekly check-ins with yourself, um, having daily habits, right? It's all incremental, iterative, right? Mm -hmm. It's all based upon the same fundamental principles. It's all based upon the Stephen Covey stuff, begin with the end in mind, put first things first, sharpen the saw, right? All that stuff, right? So when you, when you start to get into his methodology, all he's done is he's packaged just stuff that's just true, right? So when you see the truth in it, you go, oh, okay, that's what he's getting at. Then you can you can start to be more creative with the implementation details. Yeah. Right. And and it's like it's like the words, the implementation details, the how-to guides mm -hmm. are are to get to our point is just clues to the truth. Okay. Right? They're just clues, right? But you gotta be aware that there's a deeper truth. Like like you have to ask yourself all the time, like, why why did Ken Schwaber and Mike Beadle articulate a short delivery window because to a lot of people it's really counterintuitive mm -hmm. so so if you could either say well okay i'll just do it blindly and not understand and then you're carrying shit over every week to week and things like that right or or you um or you maybe you even manage to do it but you feel constrained by it when it when it's it's not delivering exactly what you want right but if you go back to that book and you go like okay empirical process control unstable system What's the sampling rate that I need to think about mm -hmm. so I can course correct? How do I how do I go down the path of not getting too far off course before I adjust? Yeah. Okay, cool. So what I learned in Dave's class doesn't seem to be working here, but but like what could I do to achieve the same goal? Mm -hmm. And you go, okay, cool. Well, let me try this. I can sample rate this differently. What if you had to what if you had to apply scrum to waterfall? 
like you're you were like you had, like you had a unstable waterfall project. Sure. Could you increase the sampling rate of a waterfall project to make sure that you were delivering to the Gantt chart on schedule? I I bet you could. Yeah, right? but I think it's more than just it's it's how do I change it but stay true to the core like i as 100%. i could go yeah. full command and control where i can say well how do i apply scrum in these circumstances with whatever controls i want but still create space for the team to own the things they need to own so they can rise up to this way of working yeah yeah sure right like whatever the whatever the context right? yeah um i think in practice a lot of times it's like people get overwhelmed they're, they're reading the words. There's probably some cognitive dissonance between what they're being told and what sure. they perceive reality to be. And, you know, sometimes in, in the face of that, people are like, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. Yeah, okay, that, cool. it's easier. Yeah. Do a sprint planning meeting, do a daily stand up, do a review, do a retrospective, all those things. Like, And in, in the face of overwhelm, people want to read slides sometimes. Yeah. Right. Or, or just follow the rules because they just want to be successful. Right. So just tell me how to be successful. And, and, but, and, and, and that's where we get into a lot of people in, you know, traditional project management roles. It's like, and, and I think this is really sad. A lot of times it's like, you know, the outcome we're trying to achieve is we're trying to achieve an on time, um, on scope, on budget project. Yeah. You know, the tools in the PMBOK are designed to do that. Yeah. But we all know, right. You can do everything in the PMBOK. You can do everything in RUP. You can do everything in SAFE. You can do everything in Scrum. You can do it by the book and still not achieve the outcome. Yes. And so the 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 art the dances is to recognize what we're really trying to achieve, and then asking ourselves is are the things that we're doing actually going to achieve the outcome? Okay. Because almost every PMO I've ever worked with, the reason why. Um, I, I know there are some effective ones out there, but the reason why the ones that are ineffective are ineffective is because they become checkbox managers, right? They're compliance yeah. managers. Well, I did the charter. I did the this. I did this. They right? forget to ask why. Why things, are right? you doing it? I did the weekly status reports. I did this, right? I checked the red, green, yellow, right? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Well, that, that stuff's only valuable to the extent that it's helping you manage it on time, on cost, on budget, or on scope project, right? Okay. And so if we find ourselves like going through the motions... Mm-hmm. and not achieving the goals of what it is we're trying to achieve, then we have to ask, we have to step back and we can say that, um, that, you know, ask ourselves and go like, well, why isn't it working here? You know, that's everything about the leading agile model. I was, I was talking to a team about this today. Everything in our world derives from a really simple principle. Okay. Scrum will not work if you don't have a complete cross-functional team that can own the backlog and produce a working test of deliverable than they've ever spent. Yeah. Just doesn't work. Right. And so you can go through the ceremonies and motions and have all the roles and scrum masters and product owners and everything. But if you can't do those three things, you're Jack. Well, right. So when we, when we get on the ground with something, like we're going through business architecture, product model hierarchy, we're looking at the technology architecture of the organization. We're looking at the org chart. We're creating teaming strategies. We're, um, we're doing all the stuff, right? Yeah. Because what we want is a complete cross-functional team with few or no dependencies between it and the rest of the organization. When we start talking about, or, or us or SAFE or whatever, when you start talking about 
Um, why do we need program and portfolios, investment tier levels? You know, safe takes so much for being so heavy. Yeah. But the reason why it's heavy is because it acknowledges the dependencies that exist in the organization. Yeah. And the dependencies have to be broken. So, so you can either throw safe under the bus and say safe really sucks because it's so heavy and it's so big and it's not agile. Well, what, what Dean is doing is he is creating a, a framework right. for dealing with large, complex organizations that had dependencies. So well, if you don't like the heaviness of safe, then you have to you have to create teams that don't have dependencies and empower them to go do their thing. Well, I th- and it's more than that, too, because I've, I've, when I've interviewed Dean about this, one of the things I've specifically asked is like everybody thinks they have to do this this way. And he's like, no, people were asking the question. He answered it. And if you don't like his answer, change the answer. Like they yeah, just, sure. they don't, maybe it's that they feel like they have to follow the process and they don't have the authority or the agency to real, to say like this thing <clears throat> we're doing, this doesn't work here. We've got well, to change manifest, it. It's the manifestation of the same problem, right? So what yeah. I tell people about SAFE is that what Dean did a really good job of doing, and I give him all the credit in the world, is he built a... He built a really solid reference architecture mm-hmm. with a with a really solid reference implementation on top of it. So, so I would suggest that almost everybody who is doing safe, if you throw away like the base pattern, you're wrong, right? Because there's a lot of truth in safe. But but what I think Dean's saying is if you don't like my implementation details, do something else. Yeah, if it's not working, change right? it. Yeah. But but people don't understand what it is that he built and why he built it and why he answered the questions the way he did. Yeah. And so they don't know how to take stuff out of it without breaking the intent of it. Mm-hmm. So because they don't understand the first principles, they don't understand the design intent. They only understand the words that Dean wrapped around them. They're trapped in his methodology. Yeah. But it's his methodology or it's RUP or it's Waterfall or it's whatever. Yeah. Right? Because when those methodologies meet a world that is incongruent, it's another thing I say all the time. It's like every one of these methodologies to a methodology methodologist worked in some place and some – that's another reason why I like They fixed a problem somebody had somewhere. Yeah, like so Alistair's like, you know, he's been talking about hard agile for a, a long time now. He talked about Crystal Clear a bit before that. But like people don't remember that he was like Crystal was like a family of methodologies. He had like, I'm not gonna remember it, but it's like Crystal Clear, Crystal White, Crystal Orange, Crystal Red, Crystal Violet, something like that. And he had this really cool little graph. And it was basically like as like the criticality of the dollars goes up, and as the size of the organization goes up, the 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 um, overhead of the methodology needs to go up. Sure. Like I'm telling you, that is like the most forgotten bit of knowledge ever because Alistair is like right out in front of the Agile Manifesto, everything right. lately, Crystal, Heart of Agile, all this stuff. But the man set, said it. Mm-hmm. It's like as criticality of funds goes up, as the size of the project goes up, the amount of process and process discipline has to go up. And so what, what, what Dean's kind of said, in my opinion, it's my interpretation, right. is that we have a complex environment with critical funds, process overhead needs to go up. You okay. might not like his process. You might not like the way he implemented the details, yeah. but to his point, change it, right? What I think is interesting about less, less is like, I always go back to this. There's an interesting line in Boss and Craig Larman's first book. Um, 
where it talks about like, um, it says something, it's really like a throwaway comment. It says something like, yeah, dependencies are going to be a problem here and it's going to take you years to overcome them. But once you're done with all the dependencies, all this stuff. And I, I just thought that was like the most funny line, right? Because they're absolutely right. They actually get it, right? Everything in their less ecosystem requires complete cross-functional teams that operate and can deploy independently. Sure. And then you create systems where all that stuff rolls up. Br brutal. Br uh, brilliant, right? Um, Both. And, it's and brilliant I, and it's actually, brutal because nobody can do well, that. Well, 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 that's, well, it's not that nobody can do it. It's just that if you don't have the ability to deploy the way they're talking about, yeah. if you don't have the ability to not have, like you can't do safe or you can't do less if you haven't created the conditions to do less. That's what that throwaway sentence said. Like, yeah, this is the way to do it. Okay. Yeah. I, think, I think the less model is actually the most right of all the models. Okay. But the, but the problem is there's no transformation strategy to get into that model. Sure. So and that's that, that's what we do, right? So I'm I'm kind of biased. I think that's well, right, right. But I want to go back to the original thing now. So let's yeah. let's say that I am some young person. And I'm coming into this field, yeah. and I want to do less. Or I want to do whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have the background to be able to tell yeah. what I can bend and when and why. Yeah. Um, maybe I have time to read some books, but probably not all the books because right. I have to have a job too. Right. Um, there. It, I used to read nights and weekends all the time, by the way. So I don't, this day job thing, I don't, and, it's, and that's more It's I don't, maybe I don't unfair <laughs> to assume that they would walk in with having like totally getting it, grokking whatever yeah, it is you're talking about. So, for sure. so yeah. what can they, like, I, I want us to end on something where we can give them something they can do. Like, what, the only how could they can not do, piss Mike off when they come into a no, game? No, it's not pissing me off, man. It's like, Maybe what I'm hunting for a little bit, it's like almost like awareness and humility. Okay. You know, like I had this lady sit in front of me one time. I was in like a pre-sales situation and she sits in front of me and she's, she's really proud of herself. And she's like, I'm scrum.org certified. I'm a master of this. I'm a master of that, blah, blah, blah. And it was all like really like low level stuff. Like I went to CS, I went to Dave's CSM class right now. <laughs> I think so. Right. And, um, oh. And I'm like, and I'm like, I'm like, that's really impressive. Wow. That's awesome. Right? Two whole days. But, it, <laughs> but it's like, but the but the question, and but not to take away, I mean, she's investing in her learning, right? Good yeah. for her, right? But the but the, like a humility that says, like, I don't know, like it's a humility and an awareness are the two things that come to my mind, right? Mm -hmm. So like if I could wave a magic wand, like, yeah, go back and read the literature that informed this stuff you're talking about. Like I tell people all the time, like if you see something in a slide deck we've put together yeah. and you don't understand it, you are being irresponsible getting in front of a client and reading it to them or saying it. And like there's something in my DNA and I don't think it's not, I'm sure it's not in everybody's DNA, but some in my DNA, like I don't like to say things I don't understand, right? Um, I want to understand why it works. I want to know that I'm right. I want to be able to defend it if, if I'm challenged. Yeah. Right. So, so I ask people all the time, like, so what if you're sitting in a, in a room with a team and you say, well, this is what you need to do. And you're right. But you don't know why. You can't explain it. You can't listen to what they're doing currently and help them understand why it's wrong and why this would be more effective. Like it, just having the right answer is, is wholly insufficient, especially in the consulting world. It's but, wholly insufficient. You have to bring people into your understanding of the world. And if you don't have the tools to do that, you will be a very ineffective consultant. Sure. So the people that are coming up aren't always going to know 
Read, 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 your, read your history. Yeah. What, what, what I, other, what I other agree with you. I want to. I want to draw a parallel that's going to get me yeah. in a lot of trouble. Okay, do it, and then I'll, then I'll, well, I'll, I'll, I'll share my thought with you. Okay, so okay. somebody can listen to Led Zeppelin and enjoy Led Zeppelin. If I'm okay. following what you're saying, they can't enjoy okay. Led Zeppelin until they've listened to Robert Johnson. Because if you don't understand where that came from, no, it's not no. the same thing. Like, well, okay, so like I think you could – okay, I'm going to see if I can follow you down this rabbit hole. Okay. I think you could listen to Led Zeppelin and appreciate their music without, um, without being familiar with Robert Johnson. But let's say – um, I am trying to like, I'm in, uh, I'm a music educator mm-hmm. and I'm trying to explain to somebody how to play stairway to heaven, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, a whole lot of love or something like that. It would be really useful to be able to explain to them. This is the chord structure of the song. Mm-hmm. This is, this is the notes and how they're implemented. This is the scale that sits on top of that. That's why you know, notice how they went from this major progression to this minor progression and they changed key here and they did that. Right. Oh, and by the way, you know, a lot of that stuff that Led Zeppelin was doing was, um, based upon early work by Robert Johnson. And let me like, let's, let's talk about how the early blues masters did it. Yeah. Right. Because you got, you you got layers of appreciation. So, so here's an interesting, here's an interesting thing, right? Because you can not know any of that and get on stage and probably play the song with a band that is in alignment with you. Sure. But what if you, what if you're a session guitarist Yeah. and you have to get on, on stage with a band that you've never played with and they go, let's play Led Zeppelin. And you're like, I've never played Led Zeppelin. They said, basically it's a, a blues and a blah, blah, blah. The chord progression is one, four, five. We're going to change keys after this measure. Um, just hit uh, a minor harmonic, whatever lead lick and a flat sure and then you wing it right and it's not quite stairway to heaven but it's in the same space right okay and and that's more what we're doing right we're not playing in projects companies software we're not playing prescripted songs sure we're 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 improvising we're jazz right yeah that's like i mean it's a great metaphor i'm glad we went down this path because you you think about like the cooperative game that coburn talks about yeah like, I mean, he likens it to music, right? There's no winning in music. There's collaboration. There's creating art. Sure. And it's improvisation. And if you don't know the fundamentals of the guitar, that's the reason why I could never just sit in. Like, I'm a reasonably good guitar player. I can play a lot of stuff. I can learn songs. Yeah. Could I sit down in the context I just described and riff with people who are masters at their craft that are creating beautiful music and you're just stepping in? My sister asked me one time, this is a a cool, this is a cool explanation. My sister years ago, she's our director of finance. Um, she started off like doing expense reports and invoicing and things for me. And like, she's become a badass over the last 12 years. I'm really proud of her. And, um, she asked me, how do you guys go into any company in any setting and believe that you can help them? Yeah. And I'm like, you know, fundamentally because I know my chords, I know my scales, I know my music theory, I know my history of music. I know my, my. And it's just music at the end of the day, right? Sure. And, and I walk in, and I go, okay, here's the chord progression, here's the here's the scales, here's the this, and I'm going to improv with you, because the 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 basic melodies, the basic harmonies, the basic chord structures, the basic modes, all that stuff doesn't change. 
right? Sure. And, and so you can apply the patterns any place. So it's the difference between playing a song and really improvising and creating art, in my opinion. So then do we need to have, you know, in jazz, you've got standards that, that people learn to play. So that I get together yeah. with a bunch of people I've never played with before. We're going to play Autumn Leaves. Yeah. Okay, we mm -hmm. all know how that goes. So fine. Um, do we need something like that for people that are coming up now where there are these structures that create safety for them to work within a framework and learn, this is when I can go to this key or that key or bend that note or why I shouldn't do this. Yeah, let me see if, let me see if I can answer. This is, the thing, this is the thing that's tough, right? Because the space that we're in, transformation space, yeah. is, um, is, uh, is improvisation. It's art, right? It's collaboration. Yes. You got to be a master. You got to understand the fundamentals, all that stuff. But we um, expect people I, to have that I, when they walk into the room. The, the problem, the problem that we have as an industry right now for young people, and I, I say this, I do a lot of, I haven't done it in a minute, not a lot since COVID, but before then I do a lot of classroom work down at University of Florida, industrial engineering, entrepreneurship, innovation classes, things like that. And and one of the things I would tell people about Agile, it's like, it's like just understand the context that it's supposed to work in. So like if you have people that are working on a small team where mm -hmm. all the conditions are created properly or they're working on a small project, like there's probably a lot they can get out of that, right? But if you're, um, you're going to step in to a really complex program mm -hmm. um, for a defense contractor that's building missile systems or airplanes or submarines or something like that, like you have to have the humility to know that like a two day class is not going to inform you well enough to be able to do something that complicated. Sure. If I was a leader in that company and I was going to expect my teams to do agile, I would put, I would create the right conditions mm -hmm. and I would put a new scrum master into a single team where with no dependencies, where, where scrum could actually be done. Okay. The thing we're screwing up industry wise right now is we're teaching people how to do agile and putting them in context where they can't do it. Okay. And then, then they think that's the way it's supposed to be done. <laughs> and, and that's the thing that's super frustrating right now. <clears throat> get a whole new kind of jazz sports. out of that. Well, so I heard something the other day I did. I, you know, it's funny. I, I, I'm not on the ground with our clients every day. Um, you know, mostly running the company and, you know, you know, doing pre-sales stuff and stuff like that. So I talked to a lot of people, but not at depth. And, and so one of the, uh, I think it was Dennis who said something like, I guess DevOps in some way is going out of vogue. I'm like, DevOps? Like, really? Like, how can that be? It's like, it's just so poorly implemented so many places. People are like, yeah, it doesn't work. Right. And you're like, oh, it does work. Agile yeah. works. Right? All these things work. But you have to understand. You're doing it wrong. Right? Yeah. But you, you have to understand, right? And it's and it's frustrating. And and you and Dennis and I were talking about this the other day. It's like it's like pendulum swings in industry. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, what point are we going to decide that agile doesn't work and we go back to centralized um, you know, waterfall style project management? Like mm -hmm. I really hope that never happens. But that's the way our industry swings sometimes, right? And so, <clears throat> you know, so kind of like getting back to our main point, and we can figure out how we want to wrap this up, is is we have to reckon, we have to have a certain level of humility. And, I'm, and I, I can't necessarily speak to, to the junior people or whatever, but maybe to the leaders, the managers, the VPs and things like that out there that might be listening to this. It's like, there has to be like a level of humility. It has to be in a level of awareness mm -hmm. that basically says something to the effect of, I recognize 
that words are insufficient. I recognize that I have to be seeking intent. And so maybe that might be the last thing is we've meandered around this. Maybe if it is even a junior person, like well, I, I have something for the junior people when you're done. If, this part. if something doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. You have to ask yourself why, like where, like I've said on, I've said on record, maybe I've said it on here, but uh, a bunch of times, like if we're, if we're aligned on principles, like the details don't matter. Yeah. Um, if we're not aligned on principles, the details don't matter. Right. And we're just going to talk past each other. Yeah. And so I think there's an awareness that we have to get principally aligned before we get tactically aligned. Okay. And being tactically aligned is important, right? Understanding how to run Scrum is important. Understanding how to run a Kanban properly is important. But it's not enough. But when you're on stage with a band that's improving, and you have to figure out how to create music in an environment that isn't playing a jazz standard. Yeah. You know, see the way I'm tying this together, driving it's it home? Nice. It's pretty cool. Well done. Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> um, when you're not in that structured way, yeah. if you don't understand the principles and you don't understand what's underneath what you're doing, yeah. like you don't, you don't have a chance. And so if I'm a young person, I'm like, and I'm learning Agile, and, and, you're, and it's something important to you, right? It's something you want to know about. You have to go back and read the stuff, man. That's so where I, I mean, again, like, that's, like I, I've, I've had the privilege of being in the room with my favorite artist from Collective Soul, Ed Roland, right? A yeah. bunch of times. And, and I'm listening to them and they're writing songs and they're like, and they'll go and they'll pull out an album. They'll pull out some obscure Elton John song. They'll pull out some obscure Beatles song. I mean, they're just students and historians of music. And they're doing 90s alternative stuff, right? Yeah. But they're, but they're going back and they're like, okay, we want to groove like this. Let's go back to this. And then they, they get in and they get the basic groove and they, and they improvise. And then they, then they, they harden it up over time. Right. It's because they're, they're, they're students of their industry. Yes. They're I think that, that's a really important point. They're, they're students of their craft. Yes. Yeah. So we have to be students of our craft. We have to understand. We just can't take the words at face value and think that that's going to be sufficient. I think, yeah. And what I want to add is like, if, if you are somebody who's younger that's coming into the space and you know, at some point you're going to be in a room with somebody like Mike, one of the ways Good that you luck, can gain, right? well, one of the ways <laughs> yeah. you can gain some credibility is to dig into that stuff. Because yeah, yourself, if you're right? sitting down with Mike and you know, yeah. you're like 20 years younger and you start talking about Crystal, Mike's going to be like, damn. Yeah. They read Alistair, and that's going to be good, right? And, and so you'll even be better if you can discuss the differences between crystal orange and crystal clear, right? So, but yeah. it, I think, for people that are younger, that are coming into this, there is what you want, which is the intention. But I think there's also this level of establishing the credibility in the room, and if I can walk right. in knowing that I know where this came from, then that's going to make me feel more at ease in a room of people that have been doing this for longer, maybe. Yeah, I think so, right? It enables you, <clears throat> again, it gets, it's, your Led Zeppelin thing was really cool. It gets into the, like if you're sitting in a room of jazz masters and you get invited on stage to play, yeah. kind of better know you. Yeah. You know? Um, or you're gonna look really silly. Yeah. You're gonna look really silly. Like I could play a collective soul song, but I can't <laughs> sit down and just freeform jam with those guys. I'd be lost. Right. So yeah, something like that. I don't know if we got in a good place. No, we're in a good place. It's time for the weird. I, I, I have I, a weird I, question. 
I scratched my itch. No, this was good. So here's oh. here's the weird question for the end. So I found this blog post. I don't remember who sent it to me um, by uh, what is the guy's name? Austin Cleon, the guy that wrote Steel, the, okay. Steel Like an Artist. Um, okay. And he was talking about this conversation he had with Dan Rome um, about when he writes books. He includes this secret sentence in the book that is sort of his his reason. I'm looking at the quote right now to, to try to keep going. Um, okay. And it's sort of like an Easter egg. So let me just read this part here. I usually have a secret okay. sentence I write down somewhere, but don't show it to anybody. That sentence is my North Star for the project, the thing I can rely on if I get lost. So what okay. I wanted to ask you was, as somebody who's leading an organization <clears throat> through transformation, who's uh, been doing this stuff for a while, do you have something like that, like a secret sentence or motto or kind of vision statement for yourself that is your compass for this? I don't think I'm going to answer the question the way <clears throat> way you're asking. You should have said it's a secret. It's a secret sentence. Not, so, <laughs> not so, yeah. So if it's secret, why would I tell you? Um, <clears throat> the the only thing close to that that I can get to it's it's not really around transformation and such, but it's really around how I lead and structure my company. Okay. And <clears throat> it comes out of the Covey Stephen Habit Covey, Covey Seven Habits stuff. I read my late twenties, early thirties, and 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 he goes through this idea of um, personal mission statement, yeah, and stuff like that. Same thing. Yeah. And so and so, one of the things that I learned, and it, it didn't start off this concise, and it's actually changed a little bit recently, but I used to call it freedom of time and place. Mm -hmm. And and so I had this like this north star that's like I want to be where I want to be, do what I want to do, work with the people I want to work with. I want to. I want, to, I want to have some dominion over my environment, right? Um, and and when you when you crystallize that, it informs how you lead. So it's like I can't be in the middle of everything. Like I, I can if I spin something up, I spin it up with the idea of I have to have a leader that's going to run it after mm -hmm. I've spun it up. Okay. Um, so everything in terms of how I have architected the company was really designed to give freedom of time and place. And the cool manifestation of that was when Kimmy got sick with leukemia four years ago, by the way, she had a bone marrow biopsy and just got like, like a three year checkup and she's like, no evidence of disease. Awesome. Just got that news today. We didn't That's expect great. her to be a problem, but it was like, it's like, it's still always nice. nice to yeah. Have Let's go. Yeah. Good job. Right. Kind of a thing. We know who her donor is now. It's a, a young oh, guy, wow. 30 years old and 30 years old in Germany named Clemens. Wow. So, uh, yeah, so Kimmy's pen pals with him. I've emailed with him back and forth. So that's kind of a weird, humbling thing to meet the person that um, yeah. gave your wife a second chance on life kind of a deal, you know. But anyway, so um, when she was sick, like I was able to, you know, run leading agile mostly in about five hours a week. And, um, and you know, it wasn't wasn't perfect. And there's some bumps and we're paying for a few of those bumps now. Right. But um, but in large part, I was able to step way back and the company thrived while I was out because the way I built it from day one is I will not be in the center of it. OK. You know, now what I've learned since then is that there are some unique entrepreneurial things that I bring. Yeah. Um, but but the reality is, is that I have now I'm working on building systems that um, that better enable me to delegate intent and to get information okay. so that um, so that I can be involved in the things I need to be involved in when I need to be involved in them, but I can be away from them when I need to be away from them too. 
Okay. And because my schedule can be really volatile. So, so, and as I understood your question, freedom of time and place has cool. been my North star for about 25 years now. That's so. awesome. Cool. This is a good one. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, no, thanks for your time, man. Well, uh, we should we should commit to maybe trying to do these once every other week, or maybe even once a week. Maybe we could get aggressive and try for once a week, <laughs> and then uh, and then we'll see if it falls back to once every other week or once a yeah, month. Yeah, that'd be great. Like that. Cool. Well, let's st- let's start with aggressive. It's early, right? Yeah, There's yeah. Like we got a whole year ahead of us to mess it up. Yeah, a whole year to mess it up. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, man. See you. Always a pleasure, Dave. Thanks, Bye. Yeah.